Today's episode is going to blow your mind. Did you know that all those school struggles and challenges for us that got so much worse around sixth grade have a hidden curriculum behind them? Join me and Dr. Kara Diamond today as we talk about why school and classroom work got so much harder and how we have carried that with us for decades. It is time to know the secret and give all of us late identified autistics some insights so we can heal from something we didn't even know we were supposed to understand. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Carol Jean Whittington, and you're about to experience the new way to thrive in life and relationships as a late identified autistic by unveiling who you are, what you love, creating balance, and being the leader and creator of your best life. Get ready, because this is where we go against the mainstream. We say no to outdated society norms, and we say yes to who we are in order to create a joy-filled, balanced, and more neurodistinct world. Ubuntu. Welcome to Mind Your Autistic Brain. Welcome to Mind Your Autistic Brain, and my guest today is Dr. Kara Diamond, author of The Autism Lens. She has written the most spectacular book by an educator for educators, but not like any book you've ever read. If you're an educator, if you work with students, if you work with neurodistinct students, you need to check this book out. I cannot tell you how many, oh, thank gosh, tears of joy. Why didn't somebody know this when I was going through school? Why didn't somebody know this when my kids were in these earlier stages? Why, why, why? Yet here it is now. So there is no more excuses. There is no more asking why because Kara Diamond has done it. (laughs) You're very kind. I appreciate that. So Kara teaches in the Toronto Catholic School Board District. She is also an instructor and teaches grad level pre-service teachers and undergraduate pre-service teachers. And I am so grateful for that, to know that she is imparting her wisdom and knowledge. Kara is firsthand very familiar with neurodistinct thinking. Kara, welcome to the show. I am so excited you are here. This has been months in the planning and making for us to get to this point today because we had to wait till you were out of school. Yes, at least I appreciate that. Out of big school <laughs> <laughs> and into the summer. So, share with us your autism journey. I mean, how did autism come into your world? I know you have a brother, but how did it come into your world for you? Uh, well, it's interesting because it really, it truly has been a journey. Um, my parents told us about my brother Danny's autism when we were children. So I think I was about grade five-ish. And I'd, I just, I saw how he was treated in the system. And it just, it, it didn't sit right with me. Like, I have such a passion for justice. And, and, and to me, I, I didn't understand why teachers couldn't understand him. Why, like why they couldn't see every student has potential. Sometimes they just need slightly different supports. So at a young age, that was what I was thinking about. And I do remember in my teenage years finding, maybe it was a Tony Atwood book or something, but my mother had highlighted in about how siblings can have traits. And that could really only mean me because my other siblings are very, they're very neurotypical (laughs) for the most part. I am definitely the, uh, the creative out of the box oddball of the family. Um, the, the, the one who's forever young in spirit, you know, I just don't seem to grow up. Um, and so it was always in the back of my mind, it was a possibility I could be autistic. And I, I've definitely taken like all the surveys and, you know, gotten, usually gotten the result. Um, but I was also, I, like my parents had told me at some point that I had, I was gifted. So I thought maybe just like my feeling of difference and not being able to necessarily relate with peers until like my adulthood, maybe that was that. So it was just in the back of my mind, but I, you know, I got drawn into this field. I just, 
I feel so much myself in the classroom with autistic students. And for years, they've been asking, how do you understand me so well if you're not autistic? <laughs> so uh, now that I've, I've started the assessment process, my, all of my neurodivergent friends have really encouraged me and have, they, they, they know. <laughs> they don't equivocate about whether or not I am or not. Uh, though I think many other people in my life would be surprised because I do, certainly in adulthood, I have controlled my life so well. Like I found a career that is my passion. It is my true joy. It's more than a job. Um, I, I have a core group of friends who love me and accept me, which I had not experienced until adulthood. Um, and so I was like, I'm doing pretty well here. <laughs> Things are going great. Um, but then, of course, with COVID-19 pandemic, there was a lot of additional stress that really highlighted that I don't have healthy coping mechanisms that um, reminded me of times in my childhood and my adolescence and my early 20s when my stress management was just terrible and things that I sort of compartmentalized away um, I started to look at the patterns and I have to say, I have, I have one student um, who, a female student who's autistic and she just reminds me so much of me and everything that I'd been reading, as you know, so much of the literature is male focused. So you see, you don't see yourself in all of it as, um, as a woman, um, potentially, I, I'm saying potentially just because I like to be precise and I'm not diagnosed yet, but potentially who is autistic. Uh, but when I saw this child, it was like, oh my gosh, that's me. That's me at 12 years old. Um, so that also helped me to, and autistic Twitter, the best thing ever, best thing ever for learning. And so many lessons I taught my students this year came from what I was reading from autistic Twitter. I love it. I love it. And there's, you know, that it's, I think that's one of the things too, so many of us, as we reflect and we have that, you know, in retrospect yeah. and we see other young autistic people and we look and we're like, oh, wow, that so was me. That was me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you see and hear other autistic people sharing about their experiences at certain stages in their life. And you're like, oh my gosh, I experienced that too. I thought I was the only one or yeah. I, I realized it, but I didn't really realize it in the context that it is so different from everyone else, you know, not, not yes. knowing what the norms are to even well, compare yourself to, because you think, you know, we, we tend to think everyone thinks the way we do. We are all limited humans. by our own experiences, <laughs> whether you're neurotypical, neurodivergent, we know only our experiences. So everything else has to come from listening and learning and empathizing and trying to see it in other ways. Exactly. And, you know, as an autistic person, I am very capable of doing that, but it has been something that has taken longer for me to get to that point, mm -hmm. not just to be able to put myself in someone else's shoes to see a perspective and experience it sort of mm -hmm. as it would have been mine. Yeah. But it was also having it shown to me, having it laid out in a way that even presented that those perspective perspectives existed. Yes. And having, having to cognitively process it. And, uh, and luckily, like you have, I imagine just from our and you've described your brain and it sounds a lot like mine, a worrying kind of mind. It's always going. Uh, so the ability to make quick connections from what we have previously encountered makes it a bit easier now in adulthood, right? To, to pick up on other people and understand and, but not always understand, especially when it's like, what are they thinking of me? <laughs> what, what, how did that go? I, uh, right. I often use like a critical friend where I'll say, what did you think? how did you think I presented myself or how was I interpreted? Like I, I I've been doing that for years <laughs> as a strategy, right? I love it. You know, it's so funny because it, I was so worried for so long about 
what the rest of the world thought of me that I didn't stop to ask, well, what do I think of myself? Oh, that's good. <laughs> that's profound. I, well, it kind of happens after 40, darling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just a few years away for me. So, <laughs> but, but honestly, I mean, learning that I was autistic at 39, almost 40, and then, you know, not really doing anything with it for about two years while I helped my child, you know, cause that was more important. Cause I'm like, well, if I was nest and, and I didn't get all of these things that they're now saying my child needs in order to be able to have this full wholehearted life and, and have these supports, I, I got to make sure he gets it all, you know? And, mm-hmm. and so I just dove in and I'm like, I, I can worry about me later, you know? Yeah. I didn't really, I didn't even know what to do with it, honestly. You've just got had by to this far, for sure. Yeah. Right. And, and that's kind of sadly the perspective and the mm-hmm. take that far too many therapists, psychologists, and diagnosticians are taking and when identified yeah. autistics. And that is, oh, you've made it this far. You seem to be mm-hmm. doing pretty well. And I'm like, yeah, that's just all on the outside. And that's the waiting to fail model, right? Where... <sighs> why can't we offer support before someone is in a crisis? Exactly. And I, and there's a couple of things from your book. I want to talk about this on hidden things. Okay. (laughs) For sure. But, you know, I think that's one of the, the big transition moments that happens in late identification is that you also stop and you go, well, what do I think of myself? Mm -hmm. Because our self-talk it's pretty harsh. Yes. And that internal monologue can be exceptionally judgmental. Mm-hmm. So much so that we never live up to anything. And we are always falling so short of our own expectations because somewhere along the line in that indoctrination process that happens to all of us as humans because we perceive things differently as autistics, things can be black and white and it's either right or wrong. It's good or bad. And we have bought into and believed that Mm -hmm. because that's what we were taught because that's what our families and and our communities were operating under those same belief systems. However, they take it from a generalized perspective and more of a give and take and and that's not how we took it. And I think we took it (laughs) certainly for me and anecdotally for many of my students, our memories, especially of emotional events, shameful events, what we would internalize as shame um, is so strong. Everyone else is forgotten. Okay. And I still remember things from grade one, grade two, like things that horrify me, but no one else remembers. Um, And And I remember reading a study that actually showed that autistic people are more likely to internalize shame than guilt from something. So instead of, oh, I did one thing wrong. Oops. It's I'm a bad person because that happened. Right. And, you know, I did a whole segment. I did a whole series on shame because it is something that in the autistic life deeply impacts us more so than the rest of the world. Because, you know, shame as defined by researcher, Dr. Brene Brown, is that Mm -hmm. we feel like we are unworthy of love, Mm -hmm. that unworthiness. And I cannot say that I've ever come across another late identified autistic who hasn't been living in a shame storm for decades, Mm -hmm. that we are less than, we are unlovable, we are unworthy of love, that somehow we are not good enough and valued. And honestly, those external things, oh man, we take them so deeply and they wound mm-hmm. us so traumatically and, and trauma and the, the occurrence of PTSD as, and as well as complex PTSD is so much higher yes. in occurrence in our world because of how we perceive things and how, mm-hmm. how deeply we feel things. You know, mm-hmm. so when you we were talking about, you know, we were talking about how we evolve and how our language changes and how we, we learn and embrace different things along our autism journey. One of those things was you mentioned, you're like, gosh, I wish I would have included double empathy now that I know these kind of things. Yes. It's, it's just, yeah. it's just part of it. And, and 
one of the reasons that I started Mind Your Autistic Brain was because I wasn't seeing those, as my friend Mark Barden says, those allowances being given to other, you know, within autistic community, one mm. to another for someone who's new coming in, who this is the only word that they know. This is the yeah. only language they know at the time. And they're just seeking answers and they're just seeking connection and support and to know they're not alone. Exactly. And some of the, the dogpiling and the things like that, because it was a, you know, their traumatic and hurt responses from a tra traumatized yeah. and hurt group. And we are mm -hmm. that, but at the same time, we're also responsible for saying, you know, I've had that happen to me. I've had people mm -hmm. like dogpiling because they used a, a word that I didn't know people yes. were using in the autistic community because I was new exactly. and, and it makes you feel really horrible. And mm -hmm. my whole thing is, look, if you've lived in a shame storm and you've been late identified, you've gone your whole life, you've got a whole lot of hurts. Yeah. So we shouldn't be doing that to one another. Mm -hmm. So it's mind your artistic brain. I'm like, look, we come here in kindness, gentleness, patience, and understanding, yeah. not just for one another, but for ourselves. We got to have that grace in that space for ourselves mm -hmm. as well. Because if we don't extend it within ourselves and we don't have that, how do we extend it to others? Yes, exactly. And what I love about your book, what I absolutely adore about your book is that it's all based on connection. Mm -hmm. It's based on relationship. And one of the questions that you ask early in the book, because you're speaking to educators mm -hmm. as an educator, and you say, answer this question or complete the sentence, all autistic children are. And then you're like, okay, let's talk <laughs> about this. Let's break it down. So, so break it down and talk about it, Kara. <laughs> No, well, I, I think every per, every human being, whatever your type of neurodiversity, uh, we have assumptions and it's, it's like a, it's a neural shortcut to figure out the world and categorize things quickly. But if we aren't examining those things and what those beliefs that we don't even know we have are, that's so problematic. Um, and, you know, in the book, uh, I do I do talk about person first and identity first and why they're preferred by different people. Um, and one I, I really wanted teachers to start understanding like autistic, first of all, is not a bad word. That's something I talk with my students. I, I say you're autistic. Uh, we, we watch so many videos of autistic adults talking about their experiences. And I have to work with parents, too, about understanding the language and what it says when we're afraid of language. Um, and so in, in the book, I'm trying to get them to think about all of those, um, like misconceptions they may have that every person, uh, every child I've worked with, like sometimes they'll remind me of other children, but they're not identical. It's really about knowing that person. And, uh, like you, you just, you can't make any assumptions other than the ones that, that I really like, like compassionate assumptions, presuming presuming competence, right? Yes. Those are the things that I want them to take away that everything they think they know about autism, probably wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, most definitely wrong. <laughs> and even like, I have things in the book I'd love to change already just based on things that I've learned and learning more about um, females or, um, you know, all the gender diversity. We don't have studies about gender diversity, not, not very many on the, on the spectrum. So no. And you know, there's also another side to that, which I find interesting because, I, you know, you can, you look at all things because as male and as female, there are differences because of, you know, we are, we are constructed and created differently. And socialized differently. And socialized differently, you know, and it, it comes from what are your cultural norms around yes. gender you know, and we have so many, especially within the autistic community and the neurodistinct community, where, you know, your gender at birth is not exactly who you, where mm -hmm. you align. Mm -hmm. So to say that, you know, if you're strictly male or strictly female, then these mm -hmm. are the ways that traits and things present. 
we really can't even look at that anymore because truly to be to be more aware and to take that perspective shift, you know, from, from the clinical researcher and diagnostic position is we also have to say, you know, these same, what we deemed earlier as, as feminine or female traits also present in in males. And so to be just, I guess, really growing the vernacular of Mm -hmm. what traits are and mm-hmm. not what traits are as a male, what traits are as a female. Yes, we have those, but we also have to have to give the allowance that those things also present in both sides. And you know, I think to not the, just say it's one. I think the autistic community has so much to teach community at large. Uh, th- so this is not based on research. This is just a little little whimsical theory that I have. But given the um, like how much um, sexual and gender diversity there is in the autism community. We know autistic people are less likely to conform to norms just because they're the norm. I believe that's probably representative of diversity in the broader population as well, except so many people have been socialized to be a certain way, think they have to be a certain way, think they have to conform to expectations. And I, that's one of the things that I love about our neurodistinct community and our neurodistinct brains is that because we don't just capitulate (laughs) to societal (laughs) norms, you know, (laughs) that we don't just do that. And, and that is why humanity has been elevated. Mm -hmm. You know, I love how you present your research. I love how you pull everything together and just sort of say, okay, let's talk about what autism is. Let's talk about what we know about autism to date from different aspects of research, from, from the gene research to what do we see in environment and how does all of this come together? You know, mm-hmm. I, I say in, in one of the discussions that I have on the regular is look, neurotypes, varying neurotypes have been around since the beginning forever (laughs) of humanity because we are necessary it is necessary to have varying neurotypes if the entire world if all of humanity only thought in one way we would still be in a cave somebody might be talking about a wheel like my friend jason said somebody (laughs) would be talking about a wheel they'd be thinking about it but nobody wouldn't be doing it it. And and the autistic people are out there creating the wheel and we've got, uh, you know, fire and wheelbarrows and, you know, tools. Exactly. And, you know, modern society would not exist Mm -hmm. without the innovation out of the box, non-conforming, non-capitulating people that we are. And so, you know, it's one of the things that I try and, and convey to not just the autistic neurodistinct community, but to the the world at large, is that we must appreciate one another. I appreciate Mm -hmm. that you conform to societal norms and that's comfortable for you and it's natural for you and that's part Mm -hmm. of who you are and and that you operate in this way. I appreciate that. And I'm glad that you do because that creates some structure and different things that we need as Mm -hmm. a society. But you also, in turn, have to have the same respect and appreciation for my neurotype. Yes. And the contribution that I make to your world. Mm-hmm. Agreed wholeheartedly. Um, and, and I think that's a culture I want to shift. I've actually already started thinking about my next book, and I want it to be about just neurodiversity in general in the classroom goal setting with students, having them set and assess their own goals, and you support the learner where they are with what they want. And I've been thinking a lot about the damages of reward systems. And I do talk a little, like, I think there's one page where I talk a little bit about rewards in the book. Um, but this yeah, but year, you I, approached it from a student-centered perspective. It was student-centered. You did it in a way that was really good, though. But here is where I shifted this year. This year was super transformative for me as a teacher. Ooh, just I love because it. I couldn't be in person in class with students. So there was so much more of this, this one-on-one, actually two-on-one, because I work with a wonderful child and youth worker named Sonia. Uh, And I shifted everything from 
wow, you are working really hard. You, you, that goal that you picked for yourself, how's it going? What's hard about it? How can I support you? What do you think you need? What would make that easier? So we were always reviewing questions like that. And then I would always end with, what are, what are you doing for your own self-care? Because I don't want... I don't want rewards to be doled out because of compliance. I want it to be something they can do for themselves. Oh, Kara, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Meg Thompson, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> you have to connect us. Oh, my goodness. Oh, totally. I, I'm so hooking you and Meg up. Well, you know, it's one of the things. Oh, my gosh. You know, I've got a card of notes because <laughs> your book was so good. It really was. I mean, Kara, really and truthfully, I mean, I'm going to be sharing this, shouting it from the rooftops because what you're talking about and how you're talking about it, you know, it's so, so critical. Um, One of the things that I really appreciated was when you were talking about where socialized learning as grades progress and the challenges in that curriculum. Uh And One of the things that I noticed for myself was, you know, I have a very high IQ. I learned to read very early. I mean, I was walking early. I was talking early. I was doing everything early. And my mother was running around going, oh my God, I can't keep up, you know? And and when you're in first grade and you're very mature in so many ways on an intellectual level, but on a social level, you're exceptionally far behind the rest Mm -hmm. of the world yet adults and teachers are recognizing your intellectual ability and maturity and I had teachers in first grade wanting to put me in third grade because my reading level and comprehension level and my vocabulary Mm -hmm. were there Mm -hmm. and my mother said no Mm -hmm. and I was very mad oh I was furious Because I said, I can read that well. And I don't want to be in this, you know, as my youngest son would call it, the dumb, dumb baby class. (laughs) (laughs) Because they seemed silly to me. And people and social norms and interaction seemed very silly to me for decades. I mean, even in my 20s and 30s as an adult, I'm just like, oh, this is so stupid. What's wrong with you people? Why are you doing this? Who cares? Yet I was having to do that. But I loved how you brought this up because when I read this, I went, holy heck, this is where the breakdown happens. When you get into sixth grade, you're moving into Mm -hmm. middle school and the curriculum expectations change and they are more socially based. Mm-hmm. And for me, you know, I would fake it yeah, really well. And you had this one section in the book where it was Annie and Gina oh, yes. side by side. It's like a day in the life. And it was so brilliant and it was so beautifully done. And thank you for that. Because if nothing else, if anybody gets your book and they, I'm um, truly, I don't know how they wouldn't, but if they read nothing else other than this one section, it truly would shift a teacher's perspective enormously because you presented how a neurodistinct person in this age group shows up and looks and thinks and mm-hmm. behaves what it looks like yep. in their day and really what that underlying behavior is coming from and how it shows up. And all I could think was, oh my gosh, I was Annie. Yes. Oh, I was I Annie. So I was many the, Annies. I know I was the quiet one. I followed all the rules. I did everything I was supposed to do, but I had no clue how to yeah. do the social stuff. So I would just like, I'm fine. I just do it by myself. Or I would awkwardly kind of slip myself into a group and just sort of sit on the edges on the periphery. Yeah. Hoping to be included, to be part of it, or at least mm-hmm. to not be the weird one sitting by myself. Cause I didn't, I, I didn't want to be the weird one by myself, you no, know, of course not. Yeah. And it's just, Oh, it was just such a huge thing. And one of the other parts was how you are shifting, not just for teachers, but for families to help them understand and not be afraid, mm-hmm. not be afraid. Because I think, you know, one of my big things is that I'm moving into and, and I'm creating a panel currently 
And that is, I want to create an entirely new field of medicine. And part Mm -hmm. of that is to not just incorporate our neurotype, but our neurophysiology. Our Mm -hmm. physiology is neurodistinct. And I have been reaching out and talking to many people all around the world to bring them in to start some discussions on this, because I feel it is incredibly necessary to create a curriculum for medical students, Mm -hmm. doctors, and for nurses, for practitioners in psychology and therapy, as well as social workers. Yeah. Because what is being taught is if we're lucky, maybe half a day of different neurotypes, specifically even on autistic neurotype. And what is being taught is exceptionally narrow. It is um, a very broken model of who we are. Uh, And the connections are also not being made to what things happen in our body that are different. And how we might experience those things and how it's hard to localize pain or describe pain or rate pain on a scale or, 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 and like, we're literal with the questions that are asked, maybe won't give extra information that would be helpful because we'd only answer what you say. (laughs) Exactly. Well, you didn't ask me that you asked me this. Had you and said that, like, or, well, how did you not know? That's what I meant. I'm like, cause I'm autistic. That's how I didn't know. <laughs> and so many doctors have a come in and discuss one problem issue. And so you only discuss the one, even though maybe everything else is related, <laughs> like, but exactly, exactly. And there are so many underlying physiological challenges that are neurodistinct mm-hmm. and very specifically neurodistinct and the dots haven't been connected. I love that. Hi, friends. It's Carol Jean. We're going to take a break for just a second. Join me along with your Mind Your Autistic Brain community friends this Friday, August the 13th at 3 p.m. Eastern time on Zoom to discuss how the classroom environment and the hidden curriculum impacted us as late identified autistics. We're going to have a Q&A towards the end with Meg Thompson. And we're going to be discussing this episode with Kara Diamond and last week's with my friend Meg. Registration is required, and you will receive the link straight to your inbox. You don't want to miss this amazing discussion and an opportunity to begin healing from silent and hidden school hurts. Join me this Friday, August the 13th at 3 p.m. Registration is located in the show notes below. Be sure you show up. And guys, remember, you don't have to have your camera on. This is our space. It's autistic friendly. We do it our way. See you Friday. So that is, that is one of the things, but what I love is that, that you are taking that approach from the opposite side of this saying, yeah, your child has an, a diagnosis of being autistic. Your child is autistic. That is nothing to be afraid of. Mm -hmm. It's not something to be terrified of. This is an amazing thing. Your child isn't broken. Your child isn't defective. You know, your child can live a full wholehearted life they're just going to do it a little differently than maybe you do it. And just understanding that. And in their own time, and they'll have challenges, obviously. I certainly don't downplay that in the book. But like I say to my students, you can ask for help. There are things that you can do in those areas. Like, I want you to take advantage of accommodations. Uh, Yeah. And I love how you set that up, especially when you're talking about invisible disability versus, you know, the invisible curriculum and how you bring those together. And you have that student story. And in one of them, the student story is the it's a 10th grade student. And she is relaying how she didn't understand why her reports weren't getting better. And she had asked the teacher for feedback and then she'd done it again. And then she showed up to ask the teacher the second time. And the teacher's like, Hey, I can't answer your question. I'm in the middle of teaching another class. And the student was like, Oh, Oh, okay. I didn't quite realize, you know, the timing, I just needed an answer. Cause like, this is on my mind. This is bugging me. And I totally understood that. Me too. But what I, but really what caught my mind, what caught my attention in that was she said, And I quote, I have learned to try and be more patient as it comes across that I am being Uh self-centered. Oh my gosh. How many times 
in (laughs) our lives have people said, you're so self-centered. You're, are you, you're so narcissistic. I mean, all these labels and things are done. And it's not that we are that way because we're actually quite the opposite. We're trying to empathize and say, I know this experience deeply. I share that. Tell me more. (laughs) Exactly. And we would be devastated to think that somebody would think we were selfish in that way. Yep. But to be aware that the people are perceiving us that way and to even help shift someone's perspective to go, Hey, don't see me as being self-centered. Just see me as that. I didn't understand. Exactly. Yes. And that's really all it is. Mm-hmm. And you do that. You do that in this book and you do it in a, in a way through story and through example mm-hmm. that really brings these things to light. Because if you're a person thinking, and you're hearing from the external world, you're being self-centered and you're being selfish, it hurts your heart. And then you start to incorporate in that into your belief system of your own identity, your self-identification. Exactly. And it's not true. Yeah. So I work very hard with my students. It's sort of like neurotypical 101, where I say, you know, neurotypicals jump to conclusions and misread situations all the time. Uh, so this is how they might be interpreting this, whereas this is how autistic people might interpret this. How do we bridge the gap? So sometimes you can say and, and explain what you need or, or why you were thinking differently. And if you are able to and it doesn't cause you distress, you can try and and match what they're doing, but don't mask at the risk of your own mental health. But some students just need to go, oh, OK, and they can internalize something and go, okay, in group work, I shouldn't do all the talking. All right, I will, I will ask someone a question every once in a while. <laughs> you know, you can give them rules sometimes that help. Um, but again, if they can't do it, learning about self-advocacy and, and yeah, that they aren't the ones misreading all the time. It's often, mostly, I think, the neurotypicals. I mean, that's, that's the whole thing is that we all operate from our own experiences and our our own belief systems. And truly a belief is only a thought that you've had long enough to become an automated subconscious belief Mm -hmm. and response. That's all it is. Mm -hmm. And if you create that belief through thought, you can also uncreate it (laughs) and you can uncreate it, right? Yeah. You can uncreate it. And, And that's truly what I love is that throughout your book, not only are you giving like, okay, 19, I counted them 19 ways to build rapport, self-advocacy, and just listening to your students. I mean, this is just huge giving and and you put together these, these forms, these sheets that the teachers can also take with them from the book and use and implement with some of the the strategies and and the perspective shifts behind this. I mean, Kara, you did a phenomenal job. This book is just outstanding on so many levels. I mean, I, I cannot go back in and dive in enough, honestly, just from a personal perspective, from a personal level of going back and reflecting to going, you know what? Sure. I might've missed a lot of these things in school. I might've misunderstood, but the invisible aspects of the social evolution of the curriculum was kind of working against me. Exactly. <laughs> and knowing that was like, I can cut myself a little slack now. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, seriously, that is so huge. I mean, you talk about sensory perceptions and anxiety in the classroom and how as teachers, you can set things up and allow time to transition. I mean, you put in just things that every child needs, no matter what exactly. they're that's, and that's what I try and teach my graduate students who are becoming teachers is the way we design our room, the way we think about our lessons. We can create an environment that serves everyone and where everyone feels supported. And this is just, it's like good teaching. It is good teaching. Uh, and, and being reflective as a practitioner is part of that. It's like, I'm sure if I write another book in 10 years, it'll be very different than this one. Because as I learn from my students, as I learn from myself in the world, my ideas shift and refine and evolve and I find better ways of doing things. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) Yes and amen. There's just, 
oh my gosh, did like we could totally break this book down and go chapter by chapter and have a, a, a different, uh, have an episode on each one, seriously, because it doesn't just apply to teaching. It doesn't just apply to school. It, it applies to life. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that, that I talk about and one of the things I, I've shared on the show is, look, you can't go into a classroom and have, you know, Sesame Street vomited on every aspect and every crevice in the classroom and these bright, overwhelming colors oh, and yeah. it's constant noise. It is visual noise and no mm-hmm. calm place for your eye to rest and then expect students to respond in a calm be able to sit still, not have any outburst or elevated, you know, energy levels. And know where to direct the their attention. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yet the environment they're in is just like overwhelmingly stimulating mm-hmm. and you can't be calm because you're like, oh my gosh, there's stuff everywhere. You know, and exactly. for me, I'm like, I have, you know, my friend Hunter and I talk about, you got to have these clean spaces. You have to have these visual sight lines where there's not clutter. You have to have a place for your eye and your body to mentally rest. Oh. And if your classroom is just like overstimulation central and you're trying to implement these, these broken shaming and harmful classroom management tools, because that's what you learned, but mm-hmm. you hadn't thought about, well, gee, maybe the container that we're working in, like my classroom needs to be decluttered and I need to have some calmer colors and some places for the eye to rest, you know, to create that environment. So my kids aren't feeling overstimulated Mm -hmm. because they don't know that's what it is. That's a subconscious response. Maybe this is because I'm neurodivergent. I was about to say, but we don't even know, like I will be stressed out and then I'll look around my house and go, Oh, (laughs) it's untidy. Okay. Okay. Right. Okay. So here, here's something I made a note of, cause you know, like you, I'm always changing, I'm always adding things. So in my burnout to balance course, one of the things I talk about is what are your signposts? What are the things that happen in your life? What are like the exterior, the external things that you can look at? That's a signpost. So, you know, this is a signpost that comes up to let me know I'm edging into burnout. Yeah. Here are the signs that also let me know, because sometimes it, it can feel like you're sort of floating in the abyss when you're going into that restoration from burnout. Some days you can just be totally exhausted and it's like nothing is going right that day. And you feel like I just took 10 steps backward. Yeah. And, but you may have had, you know, four or five days that were really great. And you're like, heck yeah, I'm doing really well. And this is awesome. But in that tough day, if you've got those signposts, you know, and you've got like your top five things of like, you know, for me, I make my bed. I know that if I get up in the morning, I'm making my bed. I know I'm doing, I'm on the road to recovery because I don't make my bed when I'm in burnout or moving. Wow. So that's a signpost. I love that. Right. And and it's one of the things that when you start to become aware of them, well, here, here, here's the, here's the thing on this one in the evolutionary process. So I was making my bed. I was changing my calendar within the first two days of the month, you know, my hanging calendar, yeah. you know, um, I, I was doing all the things that were on my signpost list. So I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing well. I don't have any of those burnout things coming up, but I was tired and I was starting to feel, feel those things that I knew were, Ooh, you moving into some sketchy territory, Carol, yes. it's time to do a self check. And part of learning this reflective process, because it's not something that we inherently do as autistic yeah. people. I mean, we're reflective, but we're not internally reflective, right? <laughs> we're externally reflective people in a lot of ways. And also being able to reflect in a healthy way, mm-hmm. questioning those beliefs. And are not ruminating. Yes. In reality, are we not, are we ruminating? Are we worrying? You know, are we stuck in the past? Are we stuck in, in the future? Where are we right now? Is yes. the harder part. And in that, I went, looked around my space. Cause you know, I, I got this, I got the zoom triangle going <laughs> on, right? Don't look outside of it. For sure. I looked, I looked around and I went, oh, I missed this signpost. Totally missed the signpost. My space was cluttered. Mm-hmm. I had stacks of stuff. I had just junk, just piles and stacks of junk mm-hmm. where normally I police that every day and like throw away. I mean, 
I got an entire kitchen trash bag, just junk <laughs> out of here between my bathroom and my bedroom the other day. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, okay, yeah. Got to add that to my list. Mm-hmm. Got to add that to my signpost list. But I wouldn't have found it. I wouldn't have identified it if I hadn't have already identified those other things. Exactly. So, you know, you got to start somewhere. You got to start with, with what you can identify and give yourself a little latitude to know that those things are going to evolve and you're going to learn more things and identify other things that you wouldn't have. And the same thing goes with teaching and the same thing goes with parenting. I mean, oh my gosh, you know, I totally parent different now than I did five years ago. I totally different now than two years ago because I'm different. Yes. And that's such a beautiful, the beautiful gift of life is that we are always learning as humans. We are always discovering more truths about ourselves and and how to interact with the world in different ways. I love that. One of the things that you talk about in your book is self-esteem and relationships. Tell me a little bit about how you take your very beautiful and connection-based perspective in helping to cultivate self-esteem and relationship building within your classrooms? So uh, I often see learners. uh, So in my classroom, of course, they're all autistic, but outside of that too, so many learners are, are just afraid. They are afraid of failure. They are afraid of not being enough. They are afraid of starting something. Uh, They are afraid that they won't be loved for who they are. And all of that, I I see the solution to that is is building that self-esteem, letting them know mistakes are okay. It's all right. It's actually good for your brain to try something and it not go well because you make more neural connections that way, which I teach my students. And that if someone makes a mistake, if someone does something that would be considered wrong, like they hit another student, my response is always going to be calm. It's always going to be loving. I am predictable. And once they see that a few times and they trust, they will really start to trust you. So much of the fear is that the adults are not going to react in a way that um, validates and recognizes the child as human. Because often as adults, we, we I don't know why, adults often expect children to have the self-regulatory skills of adults, but adults don't always have self-regulatory skills. Like, uh, Thank you. You know what I mean? And, yes. And so I found just building up students, um, even especially, especially if it's a student you're having trouble connecting with, that's where you have to spend your time. Um, I learned this the hard way. In my first couple of years, I definitely got into more power struggles and had more punitive practices that uh, I look back with regret now. Um, but I learned very quickly that, okay, this is a child I'm having trouble connecting with. They're like shredding paper over my head. They're calling out all the time. They're doing all these things. They're seeking connection. They're seeking connection with me. So why don't I start the day doing some sort of bonding activity with this child, whether it's we sit down and do an art project together, or I have them help me collect forms and give them leadership roles, give these opportunities to children who don't have these opportunities, who are not typically trusted, who are not typically um, given grace and forgiveness and the chance for a clean slate each day. And I I put clean slate each day in the book because it's for both of us. It's for the adults too. I can always do better. And I learn with my student, if I'm doing something that is, is triggering to you, I want to change that. And I want to build trust on my end so that you are safe with me. And so I'm going off onto a tangent, but so no, you're, often, not, you're, you're in the right world. Just okay. I'm in the right world. Great. Uh, so, so many learners just have these, these ideas about themselves from internalized ableism, from being punished repeatedly for things they cannot help or change or, or even understand. And so I really see it as my job to teach them that they have self-worth, that they have been misunderstood by teachers and parents sometimes. And, and it's amazing because I do work with learners for three or four years at a time, seeing where they start and how fearful they are 
I'm going to get teary eyed just talking about it. And then the empowered um, person who recognizes the things that are hard for them, but is no longer ashamed about those things and has strategies or knows how to ask for help and accept help. And that's okay because we all need those things. Oh, and yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so I have to convince oh. them sometimes, right? I have to say, no, you are not lazy. I don't believe in laziness. That is not a thing. <laughs> Uh, I say, you know, you, you have internalized this, but that's a signal that something is stressful for you. I'm a big fan of Dr. Ross Green's work. So I teach my students about it all the time, both the children and the adults. I teach them, we need to think about behavior differently. It's a signal that tells us we need to help. Oh, yes, exactly. Exactly. And if you are a late identified autistic and you're listening just because randomly you're listening, not because you're an educator or you're not a parent yet, this is for you right here. This Kara and I are talking about things that truly just make a difference in our lives as humans mm -hmm. and having that allowance for yourself, having that grace and that space to look at things differently to shift your perspective and how you think about yourself and what you have agreed to or what do you have internalized throughout your entire life that just isn't true mm -hmm. you know one of the things one of the journal prompt questions that I have as you're starting your late identified journey in the unveiling method is how would you describe yourself Sit down and describe yourself on paper. If you had to write down who you are, tell me everything about you and write that, write it down. Wow. What do you believe about yourself? What do you think you're capable of? What do you like? What do you dislike? You know, who are you now right here in this moment? It's not an easy question. I mean, it's one I had to ask myself mm -hmm. and it was one of the biggest changes because when it's on paper and then you can go back and reread it a week later, a day later, months later. Wow. What happens when you read that? Yes. Is where the change happens because I'm not self-centered. I'm not stupid. I'm not lazy. I'm not slow. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I have executive functioning challenges, but it's usually because of other things. Yes. And when, it's, when it's we're really stressed fear. out, mm -hmm. yeah, it's a deeper fear usually of what if I get it wrong? Oh, I say all and, the time. I feel like I'm, um, I'm juggling so many balls and anxiety is what fuels me. And if they were to all fall, I'd be in like a McDonald's ball pit, which would be really gross as well. But <laughs> that's how many balls there are. <laughs> Ew. And then I always smell like stinky boy food. Oh, I don't know why my parents let me go in those as a child. Ugh. Oh, bacteria frap. Okay, sorry to everybody on the other end. This is like got sick. Kara and I are ill. But truly, is that just not one of the one of the greatest things that we learn is that success is a crummy teacher. Yes. It really is. We don't learn anything about ourselves. We don't learn anything about the world. We do learn nothing. And our brain does not respond to success in the same way that it responds to when something doesn't go to oh, our expectations or outcomes. So true. And for me, thinking about my life in a new framework, it, it, I, it's already, even though I haven't been officially told, but both people that I spoke to so far were like, that checks all the boxes. Um, but it's allowed me to forgive myself for things that I, I was holding on to and didn't realize, right? Like, why, why did I, why I have a very heightened freeze response. So why couldn't I advocate in that situation? Why, like, why was this my reaction? I'm, I'm smart. I should be better than this. And I can let that go because there's a reason why those situations were so, so stressful. Oh, I think that's so important. I really do. I'm the same though. I'm like a huge freeze person. <laughs> Fight, flight, freeze. I freeze and I flight. <laughs> I'm exactly. not the fighter. I do not come out swinging. That is not me. 
I am terribly conflict averse. Like <laughs> I'm oh, the worst. Me too. And you know what's really funny is that in this whole process of this late identified journey, I've also reclaimed so much of myself that I had given away or that I had suppressed for so long because I was believing what other people were telling me I was supposed to be and how I was supposed to be Mm -hmm. in the world. And when that happens, you are no longer living in integrity with yourself. So you get to where you don't even trust your own judgment and your own self, (laughs) you know, and we talk, we talk about that in, in the unveiling method. And that's a big part of unveiling, but it's also the reclamation of yourself. And we tend to, when we have a disjointed exterior and internal world, when those things do not align, when our internal world does not align with our external world, we go through a great deal of anxiety and depression. That is the, those are the symptoms of that when you do not have, when you have discord in your internal and external world. Mm-hmm. And when those things start to come back into alignment and you start to get that authenticity and reclaim that ownership and creatorship in your own life, that's one of the things I love about your book is that the way that you approach teaching and the way that you impro- approach relationship connection building is that you're helping students now to not lose those things, to identify them as what they are, to embrace them and and incorporate living in an authentic and aligned way so that we don't have another generation of adults like me that are having to spend the next 40 years on doing the first 40. And all the damage, especially of our education systems and, uh, and other, other systems in place. There's so many barriers in society. What, what, I mean, honestly, think about it for a minute for everything that we've done, you and me, you know, in, in our lives to get to this point, where would it be different and how would it be different if we had had these things in place mm-hmm. and we were able to learn and explore and really embrace our neuro distinct brains in a beautiful and unique way so that we could more aptly use them in our world today. Yes. Where would our world be? Oh, I love that. And, and to have, I mean, I would love all children to understand that we all interact and relate in different ways. And we all have our place. We all just want to belong. And because isn't it so true that when you are on the playground, when you're nine years old, 10 years old, somehow they know you're the bottom of the totem pole, right? They know that you are at the bottom of that chain. And, and ha- yeah, that's something I would love to change. I would love to have classroom cultures where no one feels like that. Oh, Kara, <laughs> me too. <laughs> I would love to have society and our, our culture in general be more Ubuntu. Mm-hmm. The African word Ubuntu means I am because we are. I cannot be my best self if you are not being your mm-hmm. best self. And it's in that relationship, in that interconnectedness of one person to another. Mm-hmm where our world changes. If we are only looking at how can I improve my life? How can I improve just my immediate family's life? We truly are missing so much more about mm-hmm. what our lives could be. Exactly. I, I got really thinking about this idea of interconnectedness over the, the, the pandemic as well, because I kept thinking, there's this push and it stems a lot from ABA and, but there's this push that students who uh, with any sort of learning need actually um, for independence and independence. Why is that the end goal? It's not realistic. 
None of us no are truly one. independent. No I, one I relied independent. so much on my family and friends. And we need, we need, instead of setting up a system where children think they are somehow damaged if they don't live up to those exacting expectations, we should be teaching them it's okay that there are things that are harder for you. You are like the duck swimming on water with your little legs going so much faster than everyone else. And it's okay to get help. It is okay to do things a different way that works better for you. And I think the other side of that, Kara, is that it's not that it's just okay to get help. It's okay to give help. Yes. Yes. And actually, that's another another part in self-esteem building for me has always been having them help me or highlighting when they are helping others and they realize that they can help. They're not just the recipients. They have it in them to give. And it is, it is just, it's like one of those broken things that gets stuck out there. And it's like the fact that, you know, rest is somehow the antithesis, you know, the antecedent to work. And it's like, you have to earn your, your, your right right for self-care. Yeah. Yeah. You know, come on. That is so broken. It's like, oh, you have to be independent and Mm self-sufficient. It is this, you know, this goal that's out there. And especially with IEPs, oh my gosh, I mean, come on, that just makes, that just, that just makes bigger problems. Yes. But really, when you look at it, every person who exists, you do not exist independently and without help Community, from others. Without everyone else. Without mm-hmm. it. I mean, we go to the grocery store and buy our food. Okay. Someone else has grown that food. Someone else has made that food. Someone else has packaged it. Someone else has delivered it. You know, all of these things mm-hmm. that we don't see that mm-hmm. as being help, not even asking for it, but giving it. We yes. are responsible for helping one another. And if mm-hmm. we just shift that model to how can I serve and how can I help the next person? Because no one does it on their own. Mm-hmm. And I don't expect anyone to do anything all on their own. Mm-hmm. Yet I was in cycle burnout because I thought I had, had to do to. everything by myself. If I couldn't do it by myself, I was broken. If mm-hmm. I couldn't do it by myself, I wasn't good enough. Mm, that's heartbreaking. It really is. And I had a student this year and she was really struggling in virtual school with keeping up with all of the assignments because it is so much and being online all the time. And she just described this inertia, this freeze mechanism that was now impacting everything in her life. And I talked with her mom and I said, give her Wednesdays off, keep her home. Like you as a parent can call your child in sick. What's going to happen? There's no curriculum police. You know, there's no one there saying that she like make it a self-care day where she doesn't do any work. I can talk to the teacher. You can talk to the teacher. We'll find out what has to be done and where we can accommodate, give notes. It changed everything for this student. And it was like, I I thought it would. I I thought self-care would. But then to really see the dramatic shift and then how she suddenly felt able to meet the expectations the other four days, which she couldn't when five days a week in that toxic stress cycle, we have to like self-care is not selfish. It's a professional responsibility. If you are a teacher or a parent, I would say, and we have to teach students that too. Yeah. And I love it because in your book, you, you, you reiterate this several times for teachers, you have to live and set the example. You have to be vulnerable and be courageous and share that you're self-caring in this way and show your classroom what that looks like for you and, and encourage that in your students. And I love how you do this throughout your book. It truly is such a beautiful, beautiful restructuring, creating of an, an entirely new way to think as an educator, but also just as a human. Carol, where can people find your book? Where can they connect with you? Where can people find you? Uh, so I am on Twitter. I, uh, I have a Facebook page. I'm on Instagram, though I haven't kept it up to date lately, but <laughs> I need to. I have a website and a blog and free resources. Uh, and 
I'm happy to have people reach out to me on any of those platforms. I love brainstorming to help parents and teachers come up with ideas and uh, trying to think so anything else. Uh, oh, and the book, the book is on Amazon. If you're in the Toronto area, you can connect with me and I can set you up with a book. Uh, <laughs> I do deliveries locally. Um, oh, I love it. Yeah. And through my publisher, Pembroke. So if you get it on Amazon, leave a review. I would love to see what people think about the book. Uh, well, I will be definitely leaving a review because this is an incredible book that really does an amazing job to share the autistic perspective, especially for students who don't even realize that that's how things are happening in their life. And to be able to have an adult to recognize that and help them learn more about themselves in the process is tremendous. Thank you for what you do, Kara Diamond. Thank you for who you are, who you are being in the world. You have been an incredible blessing. And I am so thrilled to have met you and Bruce Petherick. If you're listening, thank him, <laughs> a friend, because I wouldn't have met Kara without you. Agreed. And thanks so much for having me, Carol Jean. It's just been so, so lovely chatting with you. If you are someone who likes to help people and share what has made a difference in your life, please share this talk show with a friend and on your social media accounts so that you can be the blessing in another late identified autistic's life. Be sure to tag me at Social Audi so I can personally say thank you. And to help keep the talk show ad-free, please consider becoming a one-time or recurring supporter through either Buy Me a Coffee or the Anchor Podcast links in the show notes below. I truly appreciate your support. Thank you for being a listener and thank you for adding your voice to our story.